Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. And I'm Sadia Petit. And I'm Joel Dahlquist. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance, and 33% general pondings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% freedom here in London. We're able to go outside and eat now. It's exactly one, 1% freedom. 1% <laughs> 1% freedom. Conditional, conditional freedom is like you have this bracelet, you know, around your ankle when you're going out of, of when you get out of prison, they just want to trace you. Yeah, See too many people doing. get away from each other. Yeah, and it's like 25,000 people on every spot with like heated seating where they serve you a drink as well. So you have to either stand in line or kill people to get that. <laughs> One warm spot in the sun, exactly. <laughs> have you been out, Brian, or are you completely locked up with your uh, solicitor's test prep? Have you been able to get a drink and enjoy with the one percent of freedom? No, I have not. So I have zero percent freedom. I did do flashcards in the garden yesterday with the oh. sun on my face, um, which has been great. But now I will endure another two weeks before I'm able to roam with the masses. I'm buckling down for this solicitor qualification exam. It's difficult, but reach out to me if you have any questions. <laughs> Are not in the next two weeks, please. Yes. He's very <laughs> busy. He's very tough. What about you, Sadia? Have you been outside? Uh, I've been uh, jumping from one park, one children's park to another, which uh, have been completely cramped as well with all the parents, with their faces, and, you know, it's funny um, to connect with the the parents during lockdown but apart from that not too much no i have to confess i've also been going through a very very uh, busy period at work so i'm looking forward to the end of the month so and to, to, to smell a little bit of freedom but it's nice to be at least to have the option to know that you can right. go out that does help out. yeah what about you joe no, I don't know. I might be one of those. I can't remember how, how Ryan characterizes the, the extrovert and introvert scale, but I think I might be on the more introverted end. And I'm just, I'm having a hard time reintegrating into society. I went to a bookstore and I had one drink one day. Uh, otherwise, you know, I've, I've been sharing this with, with my partner and it's been so cozy to be inside for such a long time. Now I just feel like a bear when winter ends, like I'm going to, at some point I'm going to wander out looking for snacks, but not, <laughs> not, not yet. I agree. Our socialization needs to be revamped after this because it's been difficult. You know, going to a place that's more than 10 minutes away from your home is now a, a huge undertaking. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen just millions of people come here on the weekend at, at Cambridge, just on vacation, you know, all the people mm, from London. Yeah, because that's something around. you're allowed to do. That's exactly. Trip. We do have some somber news that I think we should recognize in particular because it involves uh, a major individual who is also name checked in our uh, intro for each episode. 
Yeah, and, and I don't even know how to pronounce his last name famously. <laughs> I, I was gonna say, do you? I think now you have learned to pronounce his last name. Maybe you can give it a lot, a, a shot. Yes, it's uh, of course Professor Emmanuel Gaillard. Well done. Yeah, we lost one of the giants. I think we can say of the arbitration world. Um, it's been it's been a shock to everyone. Um, to, to lose him suddenly and and I'm sure you guys saw there's been testimonies coming from all around the world it's yes. it's really incredible he's really touched everyone's I think hearts and minds um, yeah he so basically sort of en envisioned the field I, I can't remember who or as you said I think I read 500 testimonials from people all over the field but someone maybe it may have, may have been Toby actually who wrote something that uh, Emmanuel Gaillard sort of formed how we think mm -hmm. about the field and conceptualized the world of international <clears throat> arbitration. And in that sense, I, something like a podcast about international arbitration would not have worked had it not been for right. a few people who sort of made arbitration into a profession and a community and a world. And he, he was one of the major ones who was a part of that. So basically everyone in this field has either a direct or an indirect relationship to him and his writings and his awards. And he's like one of those founding fathers to most Yeah, people. and we've, we've talked about him indirectly, of course, and directly in this podcast so many times. And I think the one regret that we have is we didn't manage to get him on. And yes. uh, there's this, of course, his amazing book that Joel's referring to, which is the Aspect philosophique du droit international d'arbitrage, which we absolutely need to discuss. So this is coming up, but yeah. That's true. But That's a great idea. And I, I, we should also mention that he, someone who did have time to get him on a podcast was Michael McElrath, like 15 years ago. As mm. our listeners would know, Mike's podcast was better and earlier than ours. Mm -hmm. And I think Emmanuel was one of the... I'm not one of the first, but he was one of the guests in that. I, I listened to that interview. It's really, really, really good. So if you want to sort of read up on, listen up on Manuel Gallar now and, and, and his honor, could, I think that's a great thing to do. Yeah, that's great. Maybe we can link it up to this episode. That'd be yes. great. Yes, very good. Let's do that. Absolutely. It's just, it's equal parts um, heroic and equal parts haunting how it all transpired and I think like that's what I took away from this as well is just kind of the dedication to the field and the passion for the field but also like we we have lives you know and we mm -hmm. become human and you can really sell yourself to the devil and you know be fully enthralled in this entire field that we are are in at, but at the same time, you know, we're all humans and we should really like respect each other's boundaries and lives and needs. And, and uh, you know, that, that's kind of what I took from it was um, mm -hmm. this amazing person <laughs> in battle um, left us. So we pay our respects and our condolences to the families. Indeed. And his colleagues as well. Yes, absolutely. Sure. And the new yeah. firm. We wish them all the best of luck. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you could also. I also saw you could also go in uh, to the the firm, uh, his his new firm, and if you have testimonials yourself of how you met him, you can email the firm because I think they're putting something together, some yeah. tribute with, with mm -hmm. various people. So that's Great also something idea. that we will also put in our episode, which is this this point. Well, it's getting long because we have some other things <laughs> as well from, from the segments that we do have coming up. The first of which is an amazing interview that Brian and I did. Uh, 
Brian did mostly. I think I had two questions because uh, Brian is such a charismatic presence. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we interviewed uh, Leonor Diaz Cordoba of uh, CT Group and Natalie Hall, um, who's studying behavioral science, and they discussed um, cognitive diversity and in international arbitration um, to expand our discussion on diversity. It's not just racial, it's not just gender, it's also cognitive diversity. And Amazing. I, and I mentioned it in um, in the interview, actually, that we had touched upon this, Saudi, you and I, about, and, and Joel, I think it was in a happy, fun time about diversity, maybe in the discussion of paralegals, about how, you know, a different background can give you a different approach to how you strategize your case. And um, so these two authors, and there was another author, Natalie Allen, so there's three of them are going to release an article on Kluver, which also, when published, will be um, included in the subject of the podcast. But... Um, Yes, that is the first interview, and it's it was an interesting discussion. And I, I also should just get a mea culpa on the record here, because one of the questions I asked was actually not a question, but more of a comment. Like the world's <laughs> worst podcast host. I hijacked <laughs> Natalie in in a, in a, a piece. She was on like a line of reasoning about four kinds of cognitive biases, and she only got to two. And then I interrupted her with a question that was more of a comment, and then we all got sidetracked, and we never got back to the other two. So in fairness to Natalie, I just want to mention that she, I think, managed to get to attitudinal bias and then confirmation bias. And then that's when I step in. We didn't get to anchoring bias or egocentricity bias, at least not directly. So for a complete record, sorry, Natalie, that was my fault. You had a plan and I ruined it. <laughs> well done. And then Sadia, you will take over. Yes, so um, the substantive segment of this podcast, we're going to discuss escalation clauses uh, and uh, what they are, what they mean, and what the impact is uh, for both commercial and investment arbitration. Yeah. Right. That's one of those rare, very good crossover subjects that, that applies equally and similarly, at least in, in investment and commercial arbitration. We love it when we can get a, yes. a nugget like that. A happy fun time is about arbitrators and social media and maybe even arbitration practitioners and social media to make it a bit more happy fun time, which I, I attended um, a webinar uh, uh, recently. And I think there's another one, maybe even two coming up. This is something that obviously has been heightened by the pandemic. How do we interact on social media and how, how does that influence the practice of arbitration? So that's we. I, there's not much of a plan. I had planned to read a few articles on the subject and take fastidious notes. Nothing of the sort happened. So let's let's wing it over a cup of coffee or a beer. Sure, we have we'll a up. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Perfect. I, I'm not doubting that. <laughs> so escalation clauses. So guys, I just want you to picture yourself on an escalator. If that's okay, <laughs> have that vision. You're on an escalator and there are different steps. And the question of an escalation clause that I'm trying to outline here today for you guys is, can you skip steps? You know, can you skip one step? Can you skip two steps um, to get to the top of your escalator? Um, and if you can't, if the answer is no, you can't, like what happens? Do you get to the bottom of the step? Do you fall down? Do you cry? What happens? <laughs> so that's kind of the, the topic of today, the escalation. Such a clause. good 
professor way to introduce this. <laughs> and thing. I can't now wait I to have this tear this analogy. Now <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more seriously, what do we mean by escalation clauses in arbitration in the arbitration world? Well, generally, it's also called a bit less interestingly a multi-tiered clause, um, and it generally requires the parties to undertake one or more rounds of non-binding dispute resolution process before moving on to arbitration or to litigation, actually. And so a typical multi-tiered clause will require the parties to undertake informal discussions to resolve a dispute. And I'm sure you've all seen those kinds of clauses in your contracts or treaties, um, followed by more formal mediation or other kind of non-binding ADR process, and we've talked about ADR in the past episodes, it's a nice link with those, uh, followed by arbitration or again, uh, litigation, if no settlement is achieved. Um, so like I mentioned, the key questions here is to think about, um, is the extent to which the chosen process is enforceable under the applicable law, and whether completion of one stage is intended to operate as a precondition to the commencement of the next stage. Um, and there's an additional uh, question, and that's more in uh, legal terms, is whether is this a question of jurisdiction or a question of admissibility? Now, this is not Chinese, folks. This is really important. And one of you guys I'm gonna, is going to tell me, I'm putting you on the spot here, but why is this important? Why is it important to put the label of this is a jurisdictional issue or this is an admissibility issue? Why do you think that's important? It matters when it comes to the validity of the award. You can't challenge issues of admissibility, but you can challenge uh, issues of jurisdiction. Aha! That's it. Well done. <laughs> this is, by the way, what Jan Paulson has called the tyranny of labels. That it's insane <laughs> that by calling something jurisdiction, it, you can get into a whole like post-award exactly. thing that you can get out of if it's an issue of admissibility. Well, I'm glad you're mentioning Paulson because it is actually one of the authors that is mentioned in one because the question is also why am i speaking about this right now and the reason why we spoke we we thought about this theme is because there's been a recent case before the english courts um on the 15th of february 2021 before the english high court and they jewel mentioned jan paulson so you'd be interesting to hear that so let me just get a little bit into that first um so what is what was that case about so it was arbitration proceedings, commercial arbitration, not treaty arbitration, which concerned a dispute regarding a 25-year mining license agreement, which was granted by the Republic of Sierra Leone to SL Mining Limited. And the licensing agreement included a clause which required the parties to endeavor to reach an amicable settlement of any disputes before the dispute could be referred to arbitration. And if the parties were unable to reach that settlement within the three months of the notice of dispute, either party could submit the matter to ICC arbitration. Just a little bit of a pause here. This is super common. Very, very, very right. common. I'm sure you guys have seen this, applied this. Happens almost all the time. Now, following the cancellation of the mining license agreement by Sierra Leone, SL Mining filed a notice of dispute, triggering then the three-month period for settlement negotiations. And following this, SL Mining applied for the appointment of an 
emergency arbitrator under the ICC rules. So that's a little bit of a twist here. And I don't know if you guys know, but the ICC rules um, requires that the RFA, so the request for arbitration, should be filed within 10 days of the emergency relief application. So SL Mining said, okay, I'm going to propose to defer the submission of the request for arbitration to the end of the three-month settlement negotiation period uh, because of the escalation clause that we have in the contract. And Sierra Leone was like, no, I do not consent to this proposal. You should apply the ICC rules. Um, and so you should file within the deadline. So then SL Mining filed its request for arbitration prior to the expiry of the three-month period. What do you think happened then? Sierra Leone challenged the jurisdiction of the tribunal, <laughs> saying that the relevant clause had not been complied with. A little bit cheeky of them. Um, and because the arbitration had commenced before the expired three-month period. And the tribunal said, what are you talking about? Mm, rejected the challenge and issued a partial final award, finding that the escalation clause had been complied with. Now, fast forward a couple, I don't know, months, years, I guess years, because this all started, I think, a couple of years ago. Um, relying on Section 67, and now this is English law, uh, of the Arbitration Act 1996, which allows party to challenge an arbitral award on the basis that the tribunal did not have substantive jurisdiction, Sierra Leone challenged the tribunal's partial final award in the English High Court. So it kept challenging and even before the court. Um, now, you'd be pleased to hear, or maybe not, I don't know, <laughs> that the High Court rejected Sierra Leone's challenge uh, first. And I think that was the most obvious thing that came up to you know everyone's mind in this, this specific facts. The court found that Sierra Leone had consented to the request for arbitration being served before the end of the three-month settlement negotiation period because you know, they waive their right to challenge the tribunal jurisdiction on this issue, right? right. And that good. I'm happy to hear this. <laughs> that this doesn't is, sound this very surprising. Very, <laughs> <laughs> very surprising. They can't just object to one thing and then... So that was the first finding. Interestingly, the court also distinguished, and this, that was the, the, the thing I spoke to in the intro, between issues related to jurisdictions it, it, sorry, jurisdiction and issues related to admissibility because you can't bring a Section 67 challenge, uh, you know, on the basis of admissibility. And the court held that jurisdiction refers to the power of the arbitral tribunal to hear a case. Um, admissibility refers to whether it is appropriate for the tribunal to hear the claim at all or if it's premature for it to do so. And what it decided, what do you think? I what actually do think don't know. It decided? <laughs> I don't know this at all. So this is you're putting it us me at least on a spot yes. because I have not been following Make this. Guess. My my best guess would be that would be consistent with the way other courts and other jurisdictions have treated these clauses. Is that this is this goes to admissibility and not to jurisdiction, and hence it's something that the tribunal can decide without being second guessed by a court. I'm going to say jurisdiction. Well, they. I'm going to tell you in a second. The oh. court referred. <laughs> to international academic writings, including International Commercial Arbitration by Gary Bourne and Jurisdiction and Admissibility by Jan Paulson and case law in the United States Supreme Court and the Singapore Court of Appeal 
And it concluded that the international authorities, and I'm quoting here, are plainly overwhelmingly in support of a case that a challenge such as the present does not go to jurisdiction. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should have been betting, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> but it still, uh, interestingly, construed the clause in the issue. And it held that in the particular case, the precondi precondition to arbitration in question was not, in any event, an absolute bar to bringing proceedings for three months. It said that the clause gave a window during which the parties could explore settlement, and this was always subject to earlier proceedings being able to commence. Um, and in light of the facts in the case, the court noted, and this is interesting, and this is why it caught my eye, it noted that, and here I'm quoting, there was not a cat's chance in hell of an amicable settlement. End of quote. And so there was no yes, failure to comply with the clause and no bar to the commencement of the arbitration. Now, I'm just going to pause here for a quick second, and I hope you'll forgive me. I am not uh, um, an English um, a speaker by, I mean, I, I do speak English, but it's not my mother tongue. So when I read that expression, that there was not a cat's chest in hell. I was guessing what it meant, but I was like, that's such a strange expression. Did you guys know about this expression before? Yeah, I, I've heard it, but I haven't analyzed it. Like So I analyzed it, I was like, <laughs> what does it mean? So I looked online and so it comes from, it's actually a, a shortening of the of a sentence that is no more chance than a cat in hell without claws. So picture a cat in hell without claws. It's oh. never gonna win that fight. You see, Brian, your cat's never gonna win that fight. So it's, oh. it's just an elegant, I guess, or I don't know, dramatic way of saying that's never gonna happen. <laughs> never gonna happen. I just thought that was funny. Oh, I, I oh. one, I love this. Two, this is why our episodes are an hour and a half long. Now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm page two, page eight of my uh, presentation. I'm going to quicker. <laughs> well, if you learn anything today, you probably learned this. To yes, exactly. Them. Very good. Because, <laughs> of course, a lot of non-English speakers are listening to this podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> um Anyway, so why is this interesting? Why is this important? Well, because, of course, it, it addressed the issue of, of jurisdiction admissibility. It also addressed this issue of futility, which is that expression of, um, you know, there is not a cat's chance held that they were going to uh, agree to this. Um, now, because of the timing, uh, I, I'm not going to go in, in too much detail, but I do think it's interesting to have a, a comparative approach here, um, not only because even the high court itself referred to the US and the Singapore approach. Um, there was in 2015, so a couple of years now, but it's super interesting if people are interested in this, there was a very helpful comparative study done by the IBA litigation committee on how multi-tiered dispute resolution clauses are viewed by courts in over 50 jurisdictions. Mm. So go have uh, a look at this. It's not exactly up to date because 2015 is still very interesting. Um, and historically in England, in fact, the, the question was there was an issue with respect to the enforceability of an agreement to negotiate um, because the courts traditionally refused to recognize a promise to negotiate or what they call an agreement to agree. You can't agree to agree, right? Well, but yeah. is is the negotiation an agreement? But this is the thing is, is coming right. from the American. I love yeah. that because this is exactly what the U.S. courts discuss. Like, is this? Oh, uh, 
So I, I see that the reflexes are, are, are playing well. Um, but, you know, this was all a discussion, I, I, you know, a number of years ago. Um, and, and recently the approach is that, so there was this, uh, this case we already mentioned for other reasons, Sula America, but that was in 20, 2012. The Court of Appeal held that mediation was not a binding condition precedent to arbitration in the multi-tier clause as it didn't contain clear language to that effect and did not define the obligation to mediate with sufficient certainty. Um, and the court, yeah, so the court held that the clause contains merely an understanding to seek to have the dispute resolved amicably by mediation and there's no provision which was made for the process by which it was to be undertaken. Exactly. So the I would I would simplify because it's a bit more complicated than that. But that the English approach now is that if it's a specific, if you have specific obligation as this is what you should do, then yes, it's enforceable. If it's not, if it's just vague language, there's not really um, something that the courts would look like look at. Um, in Switzerland, um, it, it, interestingly as well, there was a landmark ruling in the case published in March 2016 by the Swiss. Federal Supreme Court, uh, which discussed the interesting question of a remedy or sanction for non-compliance with a multi-tier dispute resolution clause. Um, and here, in fact, and Brian, you'd be happy to hear that the court characterized the question of the consequence of non-compliance with a mandatory pre-arbitral condition as an issue of jurisdiction mm -hmm. and not a question of admissibility. Everyone's oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and this one, yeah. And then they considered uh, several options of what would be the consequence. So what happens if you don't respect this thing then? So at first, and I, I, I'm just going to talk a little bit in detail this, because I think it's important, the chain of thought. They looked into whether it was enough for an arbitral tribunal to award damages for breach of contract without any impact on the arbitral proceedings. But the court said, well, such a solution would deprive the pre-arbitral condition of any meaning because they and they considered that a procedural consequence was necessary because they said that the purpose of a mandatory pre-arbitral condition is usually to provide an opportunity to avoid the expense and disruption of an arbitration, which is especially relevant for construction projects. And that's very true, which often give rise to numerous highly complex disputes. So that purpose would not be served if the payment of damages was the only consequence for failing to comply with the pre-arbitral condition. The court went on to assess whether an arbitral tribunal should dismiss the case outright for lack of temporal then jurisdiction. But the court found that this solution also was problematic for two reasons. First, if the pre-arbitral step does not result in a settlement of the dispute, the parties would have to incur significant costs to initiate arbitration a second time. And second, the dismissal of the cost could cause problems if the claims at issue are close to becoming time barred, uh, as pre-arbitral ADR proceedings will not usually interrupt a limitation period. Mm. Issues, issues. So the court therefore found that the preferable solution would be for an arbitral tribunal to suspend the arbitration, to allow the parties to comply with the pre-arbitral condition and according to the court, it is for the tribunal to define the condition and the duration of the suspension in order to ensure in particular that a party cannot take advantage of it to unduly stall the arbitration. Okay, so that, that, that's actually more pragmatic than I thought it would be and something I can sort of sign up to even though I'm not sure on principle that this is something that goes to jurisdiction. But once it is in court, typically that is too late, no? 
when you're in court, there's been an award rendered and the court cannot say the tribunal has to pause the arbitration so that the parties can comply with uh, the previous steps yeah. because that's yeah. already a moot point when there's an award rendered. That's Maybe this was a different scenario. Yeah, that's a very good point. I wonder if in that case that it it it, it was not you know from the it was a at an earlier stage maybe. Yeah, yeah, presumably, because if so, I guess I mean that makes sense. That's something that because otherwise the the normal issue that people have with this is that it's it's not very pragmatic to insist that you know you you stop a, a moving machine that is a com complex arbitration mm -hmm. just so that the parties have to go back and wait for like two weeks of failed mediation and then you can resume the arbitration again. That's not pragmatic. But. Right, right. And there's nothing to stop parties from negotiating in parallel to the initiation of the arbitration. And that's, right. I think, an argument that I've seen, which is like, okay, well, we filed the request, but, you know, there's time lags in between each of these phases. If you want to negotiate, come give us a call. And this is the reality. I mean, you know, I'm right. in some cases right now, this is exactly what's going on. You do right. that all the time, you know, and especially in this construction dispute world, you do that, you know all the time on the side. Um, the um, the French, should I speak about the French? I can't go into too much detail, so I'm not going to speak too much about the French. I'm just going to say a little bit, a little thing that is interesting with respect to the Swiss approach is that they actually will not suspend the proceedings, generally speaking. That's not the approach that they will take. Um, and they will, they, they will just say that an escalation clause needs to be complied with. Um, but the practical approach is they they say that it would stop the statute of limitation. Now, of course, it's a case by case basis and everything. But I've seen that happen. The interesting thing about the French approach, which I haven't addressed yet, is the question of counterclaims. What happens to counterclaims? What if you bring a claim and you respect the dispute, you know, the multi tier clause? And I'm like bringing a counterclaim, and then. Um, you know, as a defendant, should I respect the multi tier dispute resolution clause? What do you guys think? Oh. Good question. I guess that depends on the contractual language, of course, and, and what is the scope of the dispute? Like, is the counterclaim mm. part of the same dispute for which you have already gone through the pre-step, or does it introduce new elements that would be like a new dispute? And if so, you probably would have very to. But good. again, that's that, that's also not very pragmatic. If you could well, just <laughs> everyone has been, the courts have been scratching their heads with exactly what you mentioned, and the French courts have um, so that was in 2017, and maybe there's been an updated uh, case since then, I'm not 100% sure, but at least in 2017, in the BioGarant versus International Drug Development case, um, the Cour de Cassation overturned the Paris Court of Appeal decision, which had held that the counterclaim was barred for failure to comply with the condition precedent. And mm. the Cour de Cassation said that uh, here it didn't bar because the question was rather whether it, whether the clause, and this is what you just mentioned, Joel, specifically imposed a precondition to the filing of a counterclaim. Come on. No. Who would think about this, right? That's so it's, formalistic. It's, <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah, it is formalistic, but it, formalistic, but it, it helped them to get out of this. Um, <laughs> I think so. Um, and so the court said that it didn't. So, you know, there were, they did, really didn't really do um, <clears throat> to fulfill those requirements. The English courts, interestingly, have adopted a more nuanced view, uh, finding that as a matter of discretion, they can exceptionally allow parties to bring additional claims, which presumably must include counterclaims in the context of ongoing litigation proceedings without first complying with the um, multi-tier clause uh, provisions. Because that goes in line with the English litig civil litigation procedures. Yeah, exactly. And which I, I know about. Yeah, you do know about. <laughs> right. 
soon to be English qualified, Mr. <laughs> Brian Cotter. Yeah. Um, but there was a judgment in 2016, um, which is M25 Limited versus Highways England Company Limited. This is like M25. This is a highway. Yeah, highway to see. Wow. Another company. <laughs> um, and they had uh, argued, I mean, the conclusion is that they, they said that the more usual approach would be for the English courts to stay any new claims until the relevant contractual preconditions have been actually complied with. So it's um, it's it, it goes back to what, you know, the approach um, taken before. Um, maybe, do I have two minutes, guys, to mention investment arbitration? And then we wrap it up. You always have two minutes to mention investment <laughs> arbitration. This is like, it feels like this is a moot uh, pleading or something. Like, yes. I'm arbitrating. Can I have two minutes to finalize my plea? I know, but I just, I just want, though, I mean, I still, I, I had something on the US, I had something on India. So forgive me if I'm not going in these jurisdictions. Not that they don't, are not important, but it's just, it's, it's difficult to go in everything. Um, but the, yeah, in investment arbitration, what kind of, you know, tier dispute clauses do you often find in your treaties, would you say? What do you have to do? Cool off. Cooling off. Yes, you have to cool off. I love the investment arbitration where they're like, cool off. Cool off. Calm okay? down. Calm down. You need to calm down. It's like a Taylor Swift song. <laughs> okay, so cool off. You know, are you sure you want to sue the government? Seriously? Okay, so you need to cool off. And what do the tribunals say about cooling off periods? So in light of, um, uh, sorry, uh, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm reading my notes uh, improperly here, but there's a good example on the Murphy Exploration and Production Co. International versus Ecuador exit case, which was in 2010. Um, where Ecuador had argued that Murphy had failed to comply with the six-month cooling-off requirement contained in the USA-Ecuador BIT, as it gave notice of its claim in 2008 and commenced the arbitration only a few days later. Um, so, yeah, they commenced the claim, sorry, on 29th of Feb, and they commenced the arbitration on the 3rd of March 2008. Yeah, that was, that was there's no cooling-off there. It was just no. part of the weekend or something. Like they slept over it, but that's it. Um and the tribunal relied on the BIT's definition of a dispute, interestingly, to rule that without the prior allegation of a treaty breach, it is not possible for a dispute to arise, which could then be submitted to arbitration under, um, and in this case, it were Article 6 of the BIT. So it considered that the claimant was not free just to ignore the existence of the Article 6 requirement, and it concluded that, and here I quote, <clears throat> the requirement that the party should seek to resolve the dispute through consultation and negotiation for a six-month period does not constitute, as claimant and sub-tribunals have stated, a procedural rule or a directory and procedural rule which can or cannot be satisfied by the concerned party. To the contrary, it constitutes a fundamental requirement that claimant must comply with compulsorily before submitting a request for arbitration under the exit route. That's, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? Mm. You will be uh, either surprised or happy, I don't know, to hear that the decision stands in stark contrast by to other decisions that construed the cooling off requirement more liberally, for example, by India Pakistan uh, in 2005. Uh, 
<clears throat> and they, uh, the tribunal rejected in this case Pakistan's argument. It agreed with the view expressed by many other tribunals that the need to give notice was not a jurisdictional requirement. Um, and also, uh, yes, that that's really interesting. In in addition to the the cooling off period, is there anything else that you see that we need to do before filing an arbitration? Sometimes going to the courts. Oh, oh right. All the Argentinian cases, mm. they almost all had a provision that before you went to arbitration, you had to, uh, yeah, the dispute, sorry, the dispute, I'm, I'm quoting here from the, for example, the Argentina-Spain BIT, um, the dispute may be submitted to International Arbitral Tribunal if any of the following circumstances, a, a, at the request of either party to dispute when no decision has been reached on the substance, 18 months after the judicial proceeding provided for in paragraph two of this article began, or when such a decision had been reached, but the dispute between the parties persists, or B, when both parties have so agreed. So that's really interesting because there, um, the tribunals in some of the cases, the Argentinian cases, have considered that this condition was established, uh, went to jurisdiction of the tribunal. <laughs> so mm. it's the difference with it's pulling off. Yeah. However, from a practical matter, as you can imagine, they have also found that in the event that litigation before the local courts would be futile, so not a can't cast chance hell expression, I think, <laughs> a claimant would not be bound to observe this precondition. Um, and then there's, you know, again, for example, in Urbazer, Argentina, um, the tribunal also described the 18 month rule in the following way. And I quote, whether it has to be observed or maybe disregarded under particular circumstances is a prerequisite for arbitral jurisdiction and not merely a circumstance for providing full effect and implementation for a consent a predetermined as valid and enforceable. So they do acknowledge the jurisdictional requirement, but then there's this issue of futility. Mm. Uh, it would be futile, so you don't, you didn't really have to comply with this. It's like exhaustion of local remedies, exactly. more generally in the context of denial of justice, for example, that there's always the futility. Yeah, exactly. Out. Yeah. So this is it, guys. Uh, I know it was long, but um, so anyway, I think the conclusion is don't take these clauses lightly. Look at them specifically and try to comply with them. If you are in um, a pre-dispute uh you know, world. If you are in the drafting world, please don't don't make silly requirements. <laughs> because just like an escalator, if you jump a step, the stairs keep moving and they'll catch up with oh you. Oh my! After. I love this. I love this. Thank you for this conclusion. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, thank you, Sadia. That was great. A a seemingly you know normal topic. Uh, analyzed to the hilt i loved it <laughs> yeah thank you so much dimitri for the research and uh, we'll, we'll put a link to the to the comparative approach by the iba welcome back we are here for another segment uh to actually go off the sophie napford segment that sadia has just had um and we're going to be talking about an article that is about to be published um that i came across through a little bit of networking called the importance of cognitive diversity in arbitral tribunal appointments and this is another diversity that we've touched upon in the podcast before but we haven't really elaborated on we talked about racial diversity 
and gender diversity, but now we're talking about cognitive diversity. And as I said, there's so many initiatives that um, are kind of lingering in the background of our field. We have the um, arbitration pledge, uh, arbitral women. There's also racial equality for arbitration lawyers, and all of these are really coming to the surface. So I'm really happy to see a new nuance um, to this diversity discussion. And today we have with us Natalie Hall and Leonor Diaz-Cordova. Hello, you two. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So you yeah. are two of the three authors of this article. So I kind of want to get you to introduce yourselves and mention the third author so that um, we don't leave her out. Um, and kind of tell us what brought you with your experience or or your interests, what brought you to this discussion of cognitive diversity? Leonor, do you want to start us off? Sure. So my background, I am a Spanish lawyer. I worked in Spain for a big law firm there. Then I did my LLM at Columbia, worked very briefly for the UN, and then uh, spent five years in Geneva working for Gabrielle kaufmann Koller at her law firm. Um, I then moved to London and uh, worked at the LCIA. So I've basically just worn a lot of different hats in in arbitration. And now I'm at CT Group, which originally was uh, a company that specialized in running political campaigns. And it's it's grown a lot in the past year by uh, basically... It applies the expertise um, that has been developed in running campaigns and just uses it in other situations. And that can be high stakes uh, disputes, um, arbitration, invest, big investment cases, class actions. Just there, there are a number of things we do in, in the legal support services space. And so I'm director of legal services for, for CT Group. And we do a lot more things that... Um, I won't go into now. And uh, how the article came about just before I let Natalie introduce herself, but the other Natalie of this article, which is Natalie Allen, uh, I've known her for a number of years. She's uh, currently a um, lawyer at the arbitration team in Adelshaw Goddard. She used to be at Boy Schiller. And uh, we had been speaking throughout the years of how small the pool of arbitral candidates is when you see the wide scope of, of disputes that go to international arbitration. It's a relatively small pool for such a wide range of disputes and how for people like her, impeccable CV, great credentials, it's just not that uh, obvious sometimes to get those first appointments that will then um, allow you to to just combine counsel and arbitrator work. So we started talking about that, and then um, Natalie Hall and uh, and I got introduced by a common uh, by by a common friend that uh, knew of our interests in in applying behavioral science to disputes and just coming to disputes from a more scientific approach if you want and so basically the three of us got together the two Natalie's and I and and um, we just started brainstorming and, and came up with this idea of advocating for diversity through cognitive diversity. Well that's a great segue to Natalie Hall. Natalie you're kind of the behavioral science component puzzle piece to this. Um, where where are you at now in in this behavioral science 
um, investigation. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. So I'm the other Natalie. Um, <laughs> and my background uh, is in is in arbitration as well. So I was an arbitration lawyer for some time, first at a firm called CMS and then more recently at Wilma Hale. And during this time, I became really interested in the psychology of the decision making process. How arbitrators make up their minds in deciding disputes, um, such a critical part of the outcome. So that kind of started my research interest and led me to leave private practice. And I'm now studying behavioral science at the London School of Economics. Fantastic. I mean, this is what I really liked about this article was kind of not only the, it's the cognitive diversity amongst the authors as well. So um, I it, it's a great read. And I think the way it starts is the current state of affairs and how we appoint arbitrators, um, you know, as counsel. And Joel and I both worked at the SEC as well. And Lenore, you at the LCIA, you know and see firsthand how unsophisticated this appointment process can actually be. Um, so your, your article sets out some concerns. So for not only for parties and counsel, but also on the institution side. So do you guys kind of want to lay out what those concerns are? So um, I, I can go first and then Natalie, of course, just interrupt me whenever um, you, you were saying, Brian, institutions have an unsophisticated approach and I think having been as as you on both sides, I would say that parties have a pretty unsophisticated approach to arbitrator nomination selection as well. Um, what we saw, and this has been um, this has been shown by studies and, and surveys, so there's nothing new here. But we saw that the, the main con- the main things, um, kind of like the checklist. A party and its lawyers will go through to find appropriate arbitrators um, or arbitral candidates will be familiarity with the governing law and the seat of arbitration, the language, familiarity with the arbitra- with the arbitral institution, um, the legal their legal experience and background, and if they have other areas of expertise, if there are any public uh, past awards they've rendered, uh, any articles or contributions to publications and and also uh, their reputation in the field, um, because as we know, international arbitration is is relatively small and and their ability, if it's if it's a co-arbitrator, their ability to influence the selection of, of the chair and then also the weight that person will carry during the deliberations and all of those things make i mean n- none of none of those considerations are wrong per se I, I go through that list and it all seems to make sense but the reality is that when you use when when all it's such a subjective approach based on individual people's personal knowledge of other people and what they can find out about other people there is nothing methodical and 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 there's very little ob- objectivity to it so it's all hearsay so I, I might I mean um one of you might have a dispute that has a Spanish component to it and you can and you can come to me and say well uh you used to work at Uriah Menendez a huge Spanish law firm like would you recommend anybody there to act as uh, as an arbitrator in our case I'm I'm exaggerating right. and I'm oversimplifying but this is an oversimplification of a process that does have some of those characteristics. And so 
um, I would almost think that an institution has, in a, in a way, it's a slightly more sophisticated approach because because there are those policy considerations that they right. add to all of this. There is at least some some thought put into okay, well, I know that at the LCIA they have very clear guidelines of. Um, when I worked at the Secretariat and we had to come up with lists to submit to the vice presidents of the court, um, we would have to include first time appointees. Uh, right. we would, we would have to include people from different backgrounds and, and for example, if, if, uh, the governing law was England and Wales, you get people that might be, um, qualified in other common law jurisdictions and that kind of thing. We, we, they, they, we had an obligation to broaden the net. Definitely. Parties and their lawyers don't have, uh, because of course they, there just aren't that many, um, policy considerations there. And I think that I, at the SEC, we saw that as well. And, and kind of what you touched on before is that deliberation aspect. Um, what's happening behind the scenes in deliberations or even in these, you know, pre-hearing conferences or at any stage of the, at, at any stage of the arbitration, how are these arbitrators interacting with each other? And if counsel appoints a quote unquote heavy hitter, um, and even, and then opposing counsel tries to match yep. that, then the LCIA or the SEC will say, well, wait a second, this case is actually perfect for this newcomer. But it wouldn't, we would seem like we're undercutting the case or that we're not going to have a right dynamic within the tribunal if we don't now appoint someone of that caliber or more in order to conduct the proceedings. But exactly. Natalie, maybe this goes to a question to you. Um, you know, I, I was asked, I have been asked on, you know, just like you're saying, a phone call. How, how do you feel about this person as arbitrator? And as you say, it's only based off my personal experience and what I can read online. But there's also the human decision-making component of an arbitrator. So I don't know if Natalie wants to take this in Leonore, but yeah, uh, yeah. What, what can we find out about how humans decide and, and um, the, any problems that are inherent in that sort of decision-making process? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that for a long time, people have assumed that the key actors in international arbitration, the, the, including the arbitrator, the witnesses, the experts and the parties are all acting as rational agents. And I think increasingly what behavioral science is teaching us is that that isn't how human decision making works. Um, so Danny Kahneman, who lots of people have heard of, he's a really famous behavioral scientist. He popularized this explanation that humans have two systems of thinking, a system one, which is really fast and intuitive, and a system two, which is more slow and deliberate and logical. So that isn't a neurological explanation of how our brain functions, but it's a useful framework, I think, to understand how biases can occur. Um, so ordinarily, our parallel systems work really well. We use our system one to perform actions which require really little thought, like catching a ball um, or not, if you're me, because I have terrible hand-eye coordination. <laughs> um, and we um, use our system two um, to perform more cognitively demanding tasks like evaluating um, a legal argument. But sometimes this system just really backfires. Our system one forms a really quick impression of something which might be completely wrong, and our system two doesn't cross-check it, and that's when we get what we call a cognitive error or a bias. 
Um, and this is really problematic for arbitration because it can lead arbitrators to distort information, to have inaccurate judgments and illogical interpretations of the facts or law. Um, so, yeah, that that means that there are biases which do affect arbitrator decision making. I mean, I don't know if you want me to go into. Yeah, describe or, some of these biases. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there are lots, but I think probably the most significant four um, are well, the first one would be sorry, attitudinal bias. So it's, it's widely accepted that decision makers are influenced by their cultural backgrounds, their prior experience and their personal associations. And there's um, a neat study sort of demonstrating this. It was conducted on 20 panels of arbitrators for the American Arbitration Association about whether a broker defendant had the right to cancel a contract with a manufacturer. And half the arbitrators were brokers and half were manufacturers. They all listened to the same dispute, but the broker arbitrators were much more likely to favour the broker defendants than the manufacturers, which kind of illustrates that bias quite neatly. Right. I think. Um, the second one is, is confirmation bias. Um, we often form a preliminary view on something and then we interpret all subsequent information we receive to just try and support that preformed view. Um, and this is really problematic in arbitration. 88% of arbitrators say that when they re- that say that they reach a preliminary view after reading pre-hearing submissions, and 70% say they don't always review the evidence of the party that they preliminary assess to be the losing side. Wow. Mm-hmm. Which is is startling. Uh, I've been thinking about confirmation bias in the investor state arbitration context as well, where you have very similar issues coming up over and over and over again and i i have a sense that it's hard to avoid falling into that confirmation bias trap like that type of argument never works or you know i've seen this objection failed 14 times before and you sort of form a preliminary view and then it's easy to make the facts or or the case as pleaded by the party sort of align with your preliminary view of that exactly exactly right i mean and of course our answer to that would be let's widen the pool of arbitrators (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but then uh, how will we know what they'll decide <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, well you'll know it'll be a better decision that's so true. yeah yeah and, and i think it's it's worth saying that really our objective in writing this article was to change that mindset because i think that's often what parties are experiencing when they're appointing arbitrators we'd rather go for the trusted name that's that's, that we and where we know there's a certainty of outcome and we want to kind of create a mind shift where people are comfortable a- appointing a more diverse tribunal not because it's just the right thing to do ethically but because it will result in a higher quality award yes and that's the main point actually that that the reason why we need better we we need true diversity is not just because it's it's morally uh, preferable, but because it actually leads to better decisions and a better decision making process and therefore a stronger, um, a stronger, more legitimate arbitration scene. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right to touch on legitimacy because if you say it's the, the, you know, seeking the, the, the ultimate truth or actually making the process right, it's a bit difficult because according to the client, it would be wrong if they lose. Um, so I think you're right that the legitimacy, it would be the correct lens with which to, to look through that. But yeah. so what do we, 
if if this is so inherent and it's so hidden and unpredictable and I can't advise my client how it's going to happen or how it's going to turn out, what what do we have in the current system to kind of safeguard against that, if anything? Well, um, first of all, I would argue that in the UK you have um, QCs and that completely protects you against biases. I was talking to a, a very prominent QC uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, explaining the kind of thing CT Group does uh, in behavioral science and understanding what persuades people and biases and predispositions. And he said, well, what a ridiculous, what a ridiculous uh, service you're offering. Of course, when I enter a hearing room, I just leave all of my biases at the door. He <laughs> literally said that to me. He said that really? he was capable. He was capable of leaving his biases at the door. This is a very, he's a very, very nice man. And he's a very good arbitrator. I've worked with him throughout the years, but he believes he can leave his unconscious biases and predispositions, <laughs> he can remove himself from them when he is sitting as arbitrator. So, no, I mean, I'm just, I'm just joking and being a bit uh, cynical. It, in terms of the safeguards, the system has, I mean, obviously, arbitrator independence and impartiality is is a critical feature of arbitration, and you have the IBA guidelines and, and national legislation in all main jurisdictions and and the national courts upholding that principle. But, um, it, it, for example, with regards to Halliburton and, and the UK Supreme Court, and Natalie has studied that decision in a lot more detail than me, so I'll just briefly make my point and let her maybe expand on it if she wants. But the test... The test the Supreme Court sets is is about how things appear objectively to a fair-minded and, and independent observer, and that seems to be the norm. Like, is there an appearance of 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 uh, you can't say an an appearance of lack of biases, but is there an is is there an appearance that it's been a fair-minded and independent process that hasn't been unduly influenced by by uh, a person's predispositions or or unconscious biases um, and so w- we argue that that is just not enough it's it's it, it makes sense that 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 um, it's a starting point basically but it's right. not the end yeah I mean I can I completely agree the Halliburton and Chubb decision for me just really brought into the spotlight this issue that the national sort of legal systems can't really adequately protect parties from unconscious bias. And I think for good reason, because there must be a balancing act between legal certainty and protection from impartiality. And the Supreme Court explained how difficult it was to identify unconscious bias and defend it. Um, and I think that means that really that, that points to the arbitration community needing to be receptive to more creative to- solutions to protect us against the influence of bias. Speaking of the arbitration community, I, when I read your article, I highlighted groupthink, <laughs> literally with a, with a highlight in the context of the arbitration community. What are the sort of, or are there any particularities in, in the world of, of arbitration? How, how uh, characteristics of our field that you think are relevant in this type of, of context, in this discussion? Because uh, obviously, the phenomena we're talking about are, are universal and general, but I think the, the word of arbitration is also particular in, in certain ways. Yeah. Natalie, do you want to take this? Yeah, definitely. So I'll just briefly say what 
sort of groupthink is is thought to be. So basically, it's sort of when similarities among decision maker, makers lead to high levels of social cohesion, and that produces pressure to form to conform, sorry, to the majority view. Um, and we see that this leads to kind of cascades of information where individuals influence each other so much that they ignore their private knowledge in deference to the stated views of others. So basically you get decisions which don't reflect the knowledge of an entire group. So it's problematic. And yes, to answer your question, there are specific features of arbitration, which means that the groupthink can, can occur. Um, we know that this kind of collegiality of thought peaks in teams of three to four members, which is obviously isn't great for arbitration. <laughs> um, one, of the, um, one of the real, real antidotes to groupthink is to have what's called as like cognitive dissent. And obviously the lack of dissent in commercial international arbitration, therefore, is quite problematic. Um, and obviously, just the limited grounds for setting aside or appealing an award um, in international arbitration is also problematic. If you if you haven't got if if the decision process has been affected by groupthink and you haven't reached an optimal decision. And might I just add, but that when I've spoken to um, arbitrators um, about groupthink and, and cognitive diversity while we were drafting this article, several of them had said to me that the easiest cases, quote unquote easy, um, were those where, where the three members of the tribunal were kind of on the same page, really relatively easy to deliberate, draft an award. It's all over and done with quite quickly and neatly. The most complicated ones where, where they, they had diff- people from different backgrounds, different, uh, cultures, different, uh, legal and, and personal backgrounds, um, come to the issues each with their own perspective, challenging what everybody, what, what the other members were saying. They, what they would say to me is like it's it's a much more arduous process, and when, for example, uh, you're sitting as chair, is it's exhausting, but the end result is all the more satisfactory for it because everything has been stress tested so thoroughly that by the end of it, you feel really confident that the decision you've arrived at is the very best product that you right. could deliver. It's almost like because we can't really combat these inherent biases, you know, we can't attack them head on and say, oh, now we're going to leave them at the door. That when you have cognitive diversity within a tribunal, it's testing, it's testing it. So um, it it is its own safeguard is to have other people of different mindsets of different backgrounds that are going to test your initial assumptions and your analysis of the facts and the evidence. And therefore, it is its own way of combating against these biases. So is this kind of the yeah. call to action in the paper then that um, if if you have more, you know, a diversity in a way of thinking and a diversity in background, you will be able to overcome some of these notorious pitfalls? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. <laughs> Natalie, sorry, you were going to say something there. Um. <laughs> no, I was just laughing. Um, no, that that's exactly right. I mean, um, we're saying that. Well, firstly, we're we're saying that 
parties need to get comfortable in knowing that having a more diverse tribunal, not just appointing household names, uh, can result in a better quality of decision. And then we're saying that to do that, you can draw on a range of tools, some of which are provided by CT Group and others, um, to give you the confidence. Thanks for the plug. It's so nice that it didn't have to come from me. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> Uh, to give you the confidence to appoint the best person for the dispute and the best person for the dispute doesn't have to be the name that you've heard of. Yeah. So on that point, because I want to know what tools we have in our arsenal to be able to achieve this goal of cognitive diversity. CT Group does have a tool. So can you explain a bit more what the what the group does? Let's say I want to appoint a more diverse arbitrator and I come to you. What what service do you offer to kind of allow me to to achieve this this aim? Well, um, we have, thank you for your question, Brian. Uh, we, we have, um, basically, as I said before, CT Group has been very good over the years at applying the expertise it has developed in, in some specific areas, such as running political campaigns and then, uh, moving it to other areas, uh, where they could also be relevant. And because the, the the core of the business is based on um, analyzing behavior and knowing how to change it. Um, and that can be for voters or it can be for arbitrators or judges. And so it's about what we would do if you came to us before you select, before you, um, before a tribunal was appointed, would be um, assess the work with you to come up with a list of candidates that has a thorough assessment of their backgrounds, their attitudes and their predispositions. And therefore, if you understand um, if you understand what persuades them or how to persuade them, then you can present the way that you you can present your case in the most uh, persuasive way possible to that public and for example one of the things we look at is which I don't think is is um, looked into enough uh, in general in arbitration is group dynamics uh, approaches to conflict vary very widely um, throughout the world and depending on who you have as a co-arbitrator on the other side and who you might think the institution uh, will end up appointing as a chair, for example, if that were the case, um, you would want somebody uh, who fits in that tribunal in, in a way that um, can challenge, well, basically that avoids the group thing we were referring to before. So if, if this is very a very crass way of putting it, but just if you have a Korean and a Mexican, a Korean and a Mexican approach this conflict in a completely different way, make their points and their opinion knowns in a completely different way. And it is important to understand the nuances of that so that you can make the most of one of the beauties of arbitration, which is having a say in who is going to adjudicate your dispute. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are just things of like that. There's things we that are relatively simple for for the data scientists and for the psychologists and statisticians uh, we work with to do, which is, for example, assess if somebody is a linear thinker or a nonlinear thinker. If you're a linear thinker, 
that means that when you when you are confronted with a problem, it's kind of A plus B equals C. And therefore, you need to be taken through a path where you understand the reasoning. I, I, I need to start with A to then take you to B so that hopefully you will then see that C is the end result. If you are a nonlinear thinker, then you start with C, which for you is the right outcome, and then you reverse engineer it to figure out what A and B have to be so that you get to C. Now, if you are that kind of thinker, what I what I should start by doing is start my case with a big bang of like this is what this is what justice looks like in this case. And now I'm going to explain why. Understanding those things, there's obviously um, no, we, 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 we are not, I'm the only former practicing lawyer in the team. We don't purport to be lawyers or to, uh, or to steal their thunder. It's just using, using these, this knowledge to have a strategy in the way the case is presented that's just as strong and as persuasive as possible. And where where does all this come from? Is this just a s- synthesis of information that you receive from the community? Is it a algorithm? How how do you come to? How would you classify me, for example, if I would to be on there? Would I be a linear thinker? <laughs> this is why we're doing this whole interview. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Right. I mean, I would have to charge you to tell you whether you're a linear thinker. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Um, basically, there are a lot of there are a lot of sources. So, um, one of the things that one of the teams in in CT uh, is made up of uh, former intelligence officers, uh, and they they're very very good at intelligence, at, at gathering intelligence and doing profiling and that kind of thing. Um, and they are extremely good at getting, doing very deep searches on people, uh, kind of a deep and dark web, which sounds very dodgy, but isn't dodgy at all. It's all it's all completely above water. and legal. Um, But you basically get, you can get a lot of information um publicly available information that you just have to dig quite deep to find and then of course relying on word of mouth and all of the things that all of the lists that I rattled through before of all of the things you would check of like from uh, talking to to your network and and uh, trying to assess the reputation of that person all of those things are valuable but you just you just bring uh, a method to the assessment of the information, if that makes sense. No, definitely. And and also using tools like GAR, like uh, the the GAR arbitrator database and all of the work that Catherine Rogers has been doing in arbitrator intelligence. We yeah. use all of that. So basically we use every, every tool that's available and then, um, and then we give it a spin. Well, there's nothing better than a previous award to give you the information that you need. A friend of the podcast, Damien, uh, is going through that now and kind of looking through the language that arbitrators use and even repeat language that they use. And I mean, if that's not an indication of how what's going to happen in the future, especially if you're dealing with someone, uh, you know, pale, sale and mail, then you're going to get yeah. probably a more predictable outcome. Um Natalie, is there anything else in, in your studies that you've come across that has an intersection with arbitration? Um, no, not in t- not arbitration specifically. I mean, more broadly, 
behavioral science is looking at you know understanding how people make decisions so that's where the kind of intersection comes from but no not not arbitration specifically could could it ever the lens or the the camera be turned the other way on you know counsel and and kind of the internal workings of teams and firms and it do you look into that yeah, element i mean that's i mean that's definitely an interest area of mine i think behavioral science um can, I think it has so much scope to change the legal industry. Um, and yeah, you just touched on quite a few. Some of those things are things that concern the hearing, like what we're talking about now, like arbitrary decision making, uh, witness evidence. I know you had um, Toby Lando on the, sh- on the show previously talking about the unreliability of witness evidence. But I'm also interested in how we can use behavioral science to chain to make law firms operate more effectively. And I think there is huge scope for that. Yeah. Yes. Could 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 I just say one of the first hurdles is actually being aware that one has biases and and predispositions. And I don't know if you guys have taken the um, the test that Harvard there's Harvard Implicit Association tests. They're they're online. They're available. There are like twenty of them. They are so good. You just do these really, you basically have to answer questions um, as fast as you can. And they just show the implicit associations you make. Of, For example, uh, they have a gender one that's uh, uh, whether you, you tend to associate females with family and males with career, uh, whether you have, uh, yeah, all, all kinds of things, skin tone, uh, religion, age. Um, and it is really, really humbling to do those <laughs> tests and realize actually like, oh, but of course, of course, you don't consider, you don't think of yourself. I mean, you always have a positive, hopefully a positive image of yourself of kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm not at all racist or I would never be ageist. And then you do these tests and you think, well, maybe I should have a harder look at myself because right. I'm not being as fair minded as, as I would have hoped. That's this going is, straight into the episode notes. Yeah. I remember I link this. I'm those tests te- te- are amazing. They're almost addictive because then if you get a result you don't like, you want to do it again. To kind of just <laughs> Confirmation like, oh, bias. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, what we're describing there is the phenomenon of like egocentricity, egocentricity bias, which yeah. we all have. We all overestimate our own ability. We all say that we're not biased and we all remember our actions as being best than other people's. And there was quite an entertaining study that was performed on a conference of arbitrators, which you may have heard of. Um, they were asked to rank themselves on their ability to make accurate and impartial decisions. And 85 percent of them said that they were better than average. <laughs> <laughs> but this is this is really true, because in the U.S., if someone asks you to self-evaluate, you always give yourself a really good score or else it shows like weakness or that you're not able to perform. And I did that in my yeah. first evaluation at Mannheimer in Sweden. And everyone laughed at my evaluation because they say no one puts the best scores for your performance. You put you know, average or below average and needs improvement. And that just shows that you're like, you know, cognizant of your own weaknesses <laughs> instead of being completely inflated. I thought it was a really interesting experience. But this this leads me to a question, which is, is there something that we can do during the due diligence process? And I know a lot of arbitrators wouldn't submit to a personality test, but could there be more in that due diligence process? Besides, I think that leads to the unsophistication of appointments as well, is that 
the due diligence process and choosing an arbitrator comes from your own knowledge and then looking up online. And I think is there and then you ask the arbitrator if they're available um, and if they've ever had a case like this before and then you appoint them. Is there anything that or do you think I'm not asking you for like a concrete solution, but do you think there's something there that could be more developed as well in order to give parties a better understanding of who they're going to appoint? Um, I think even before the due diligence stage, if if um, there were a, a move towards including some language in arbitration agreements that just makes um, the tribunal diversity just put in characteristics there that they have to comply with or, or or differences that have that have to be found between the members of the tribunal so that you so that you're really pushing um, for for a true diversity. Um, Natalie, I don't in the due diligence front. I don't know if you want to take that. No, I mean, nothing immediately comes to mind other than that process just being a way of learning more about the arbitrator for parties to get comfortable that they're appointing someone who's got the requisite skills to handle the right. I mean, I can't, yeah, I, I can't think of anything more than that just now. I think, I think also because cognitive diversity is more also just kind of goes beyond the individual of just like basically what we are hoping is that through cognitive diversity, there's a greater collective intelligence and therefore the tribunal is better than the sum of its parts. Right. So actually by bringing those three people together, they're actually better than they would be individually or in, or in other tribunals where with more similar like-minded individuals. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And we've touched upon this and also Natalie touched upon it, which is within law firm teams as well. Your legal team will be much better with some sort of cognitive diversity and diversity of background. You say that someone's diverse just by their nationality, but they went to Harvard as well. And so you have three Harvard grads thinking the same. And, you know, that doesn't really bring you that that, you know, elevation. And sometimes it's just about just challenging stuff and just um, I mean, I, I CT Group is a good, and, and the teams that I work with are a good example about cognitive diversity. I'm the only former practicing lawyer, so sometimes I'm just at a meeting and they're all talking about something and they completely understand they're all on the same page and I just come in and ask why. Mm. And they don't ask each other why because they've been doing this for years and suddenly it's like, what do you mean why? And then they have to go through the process of explaining it to me and therefore explaining it again to themselves. And, I mean, sometimes I'm just obnoxious but sometimes we actually get to a better understanding of what it is we're trying to deliver to clients right just by virtue of just somebody coming in with with a fresh set of eyes and saying i'm not quite sure about this just explain it to me again run me through it again Mm. yes i think we all would stand better to ask ourselves some more questions of why (laughs) <laughs> and so I forgot I, I had I had the best story and uh, Natalie I don't even think you've heard it. My first week at the LCIA, first case that lands on my desk, an arbitration clause that says that the list of potential candidates has to be drawn up by the president of the old Etonian Legal Association. <laughs> <laughs> this and 
I was just like, is this, is this just, is it April? Like, it's my first week here. Are they just, are they, is this just a prank? It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. It turns out, I mean, the, the, the beauty of it was that it turns out that that association does not exist and therefore the clause wasn't valid and the mm. party said, okay, well then let's, let's let the old CIA, the, the, the LCIA do the best they can. And so, the joy I found in drawing up that initial list of candidates to submit <laughs> to the LCIA court and to think you wanted the the president or the chair of the Old Etonian Legal Association to draft this, and actually you have a Spanish woman who's not even a solicitor <laughs> in the UK coming up with this list for you. Of course, it was like all women. <laughs> Good for you. Uh. Yeah. Oh, that, is such, that is, I know those joys of putting together a list of arbitrators and sneaking in ones. Be like, you don't even want this, and, but I know you need it. <laughs> legal association. I mean, give, seriously, give me a break. Like, give me a break. <laughs> um, Joel, do you have another question? No, not really. Maybe we should ask about the article if it's not premature. Where and when will it be published? Front page of the Times. <laughs> Great, we'll link that. I don't know. I mean, that laughter is quite hurtful, but okay. <laughs> it will get there. But you said that it's um, going to be published, correct? Yeah, it's been pre-approved for publication in the Clear Journal of International Arbitration, so um, it is forthcoming. Great, we'll bump it up uh, once out. I know from uh, painful personal experience that sometimes it, it takes a little longer than you would hope as the author, but we will stay on top of it and get back to it once it's out and publicly available. Absolutely. Thank you, Thank you guys so much for joining us. It was great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Right, happy fun time when it's too cold, but you need a drink anyway. <laughs> and it's also, oh, it's, it's just past noon when we record this. I guess we could have a remote drink. I'm, I'm drinking coffee. Anywho, we are talking about arbitrators and arbitration practitioners and their social media activities. And this is, we're basically stealing this subject from other people who have talked about it in a much more structured and serious way. But that is what we do on the arbitration station. <laughs> Good artists steal from others. Um, I, I, I saw this webinar or attended it as a passive observer and it was really really good and they raised a lot of questions that I had not thought about before but they, they kicked it off actually by mentioning this um, court of arbitration award oh no well this is how, how little I did prepare I can't remember if it, the award was challenged or if the arbitrator was challenged but the, the essence of it was that in Swiss court a court of arbitration for sport uh, case ended up somehow in the Swiss courts, and the arbitrator, one of the arbitrators in question, had written, I don't know if you saw this, this was like two different GAR headlines over time, uh, so I'm sure you may know more than I do about this. An arbitrator on a cost tribunal had apparently tweeted, I think, uh, something disparaging about Chinese people. Oh, yeah. And then he was, after that, he was on a tribunal that dealt with a doping case against the Chinese athlete. Oh, and the Chinese Athletes Council managed to remove, either to remove the arbitrator or to have the award set aside based on the alleged 
unsuccessful uh, appearance of impartiality or lack of impartiality and independence. So I don't know, for the, for the record, don't know if the award was set aside or if the arbitrator was removed, but it was successful in any event. Something that the arbitrator had tweeted had very important consequences for the case. That was one of the hooks they mentioned on this uh, webinar for why it matters. And then the whole discussion broadened, and I think that's the, the focus that we should take as well. Does it matter what arbitrators, if we start with that, do on social media? If they, And does it matter in what kind of social media, if I ask you that? Because I think, and please raise your hand or voice if you do not agree, but I think we all agree that liking someone's professional activity on LinkedIn is not a problem at all. But at some point, you know, there's a line. What about being friends on Facebook? What about posting private pictures on Facebook when you're like all chummy at a barbecue next to each other in a non-professional context? You know, where is the line for when your social media activities start to maybe become problematic as an arbitrator and maybe by extension as counsel as well? What do you think? Mm -hmm. I, I see the argument. Uh, I mean, definitely not like Facebook friends or like, you know, LinkedIn contacts of your network. But um, I, I mean, something about tweeting a, a view, which is inflammatory, I think could be a basis for it. So, of course, it depends. The tweets are not endorsement. <laughs> no. <Trump. laughs> sometimes they are. Yeah, so. sometimes they are. Well, it's it's a... Yeah, I think it's different when you're when you're LinkedIn connected to someone and you share activity or articles. So what, one thing that was mentioned several times at the, the webinar, which I think is a very useful way of thinking about this, and soon we'll turn to the more fun aspect of how to manage your social media aspect, but speaking strictly about the legal technical things, it I think the point to keep in mind is that it's, it's the substance of the relationship and the substance of the interaction that we're looking for, not the channel on which it is posted or the manner in which it is posted. Right. So basically, social media is just like any other you know, mode of communication, and it shouldn't matter if you're connected or if you're writing something, it's what you're writing. And it would be the same as if that was like an offline communication, essentially. So don't blame social media, blame the, the underlying relationship and focus on that if you want to frame a challenge. But I want to ask you about your social media strategies. I know Brian and I had this discussion on air like five years ago, and I was amazed because Brian just accepted everyone on LinkedIn and he ended up with like 6,000 LinkedIn connections, which I assume is still the case. Because <laughs> I, I was thinking that there is, of course, as we all know, a, a tier of arbitrators and arbitration practitioners that are senior, but most of them are arbitrators who aren't on social media at all for for various reasons, they might be old, or they might think that they are above it, and that it, it only adds problems or potential problems and doesn't really add any benefits. I'm interested what you think about what it says about be uh, a, an arbitrator, for example, if they're active or if they aren't active, because there are also senior people who are very active on social media. Gary Bourne is mm -hmm. like very, very active on LinkedIn, for example, and he is one of the most senior people in the field. How do you feel about, you mean, you're both working with appointing arbitrators on behalf of your clients. How much of a factor is it and what, what does it say about an arbitrator if he or she is active or not active at all on social media? I would always look at, I mean, that's probably a confession, but I think everybody does that. You kind of, uh, you know, look at their activity, period, whether it's a social media or not, you know, what have they published? Are they speaking at conferences? What have they said? And now I think with social media, it's much 
easier to to find you know their views or the articles or what they're posting and and so that's part of it's become part of their research process i think linkedin people do look at linkedin profiles when they're selecting people for jobs as well right so also an arbitrator is is like any other position or job but so it doesn't say to to you if an arbitrator has an active LinkedIn presence, for example, it doesn't say, oh, this is not a serious person. This is not someone of substance because they use LinkedIn. Because I, I, I gu I'm guessing like 80% of the people you are considering for arbitrator appointments, at least in big disputes, they aren't on LinkedIn or mm -hmm. not actively, at least. I see your point. And I, mm -hmm. I think the, the medium also dictates the level of informality that's that you are exposed to. If you see, you know, someone's LinkedIn feed, I think is particularly manicured to make them look like overachievers and completely serious. But if you see someone's Instagram or someone's Facebook and you see a completely different level of content, that could bring up different questions. Um, and I, I think you're right, actually. You know, you see, I, I've seen some senior people's Facebook and it paints them in a new light when I see them out with their friends or in plain mm. clothes. And you're just like, <laughs> like, well, that doesn't seem so serious. And that actually, I mean, I hadn't thought of this until right now, so forgive me if it's a half-baked thought, but if you're at a hearing, for example, and in between hearings, you see someone's Instagram story, one of the arbitrators, at 3 a.m. at a club, and they've posted, <laughs> and you have a hearing the next day, would that be grounds to say something? Mm, very good question. You didn't probably sleep, you didn't yeah, uh, spend you the time. Prepared, or the week before yeah. the hearing, they're in Barbados on, on the beach with not a document in sight. Well, you know, obviously that's a bit looser, but if, if someone's out till 3 a.m. the night before, I would have something to say about it, I think. But that's your private life, though. I know, but... Yeah, yeah exactly. I don't know, do I find... How do you anchor that in the legal ground? That like, what, these what, are like... Once, yeah, this is my like Frenchness coming out. It's like, what does it matter how many wives you have? Or how <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everyone has a mistress. Everyone, everyone has stories. Everyone has. Uh... No, 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 no. I, I, I'm just saying it's it's um, on LinkedIn. It's supposed to be professional. I think mm -hmm. that's that's the thing. And and if you post, um, would you take the example or Twitter? Twitter, you took the example of, of a tweet that was saying something with respect to, related to the case, something you're working on. I mean, that's definitely, people are going to look at this. You are not posting. If you post something on social media, I, I had this conversation once with someone. I had, a, I'm not going to say when, but at some point, somebody approached me for a job and uh, and she mentioned, she said, oh, I heard your, it wasn't this podcast, it was another one. I heard you speak at the podcast and it was about my life and, you know, <laughs> And how uh, the upbringing and the cultural diversity and everything. And I was so shocked that she had listened to it. And she said, well, if you've put it on there, you know, people are going to listen to it. You're mm -hmm. going to you're putting yourself out there. Right. So people do put things online and they, the, the implication is that people are going to look at it. People are oh going to look God. at it. I had not. Can, can you imagine someone going through our like online footprint? Now there's hours and hours yes, and of hours course. of the arbitration yes. session. Uh, absolutely it, it, it is scary because people will do that at some point you know the be you said this you met this you this is your thought this is your opinion this is blah 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 yeah you are putting yourself out there and people will look at it do you consider so, that you are both you especially Sadia, 
are very active on social media. Do you think, and, and like, is that a filter that you have to keep at the back of your head when you post things? Like, this is going to be here forever and it might come back and hurt me five years Yeah, from now. that's a very good question. I have thought about this, but I never really say anything that, I mean, <laughs> I do post things, I do say things, but it's not like, it's not a position on a specific matter of law. I don't know how, how to put this. Maybe it will come back and bite it, but um, I, I just don't, I think if you there, there might be a real chilling effect in the community as well if you start using what people have said at conferences and articles and right. yada yada it's just what I'm doing is posting things for for to share knowledge and to brainstorm That's true. issues. But it, it, it's I'm, yeah. it's not just the substance though, and I'm this is the devil's right. advocate argument because I, I I don't agree with this at all. I think it's lovely that we're able to sort of interact online, especially the last year, but you know you have. We are we are have our WhatsApp group. We are in another WhatsApp group with other lawyers. We have a lot of like informal online communications that aren't like posting on LinkedIn about something substantive. Even on LinkedIn, you know, you have you endorse someone else's promotion or whatever, and you cheer on someone, and that person might be opposing counsel or an arbitrator in the case down the line. It's all these like you know ma manifested connections of people in this little club of arbitration that might also become problematic. Obviously, we love those aspects. That's the human side of it. Mm -hmm. But that might, especially for an outside observer, and that's another question, what is the standard? Are we asking an arbitration practitioner or are we asking like a well-informed neutral person what is too close? But it could look like, you know, it's a club of people like nominating and appointing and hiring each other. Mm -hmm. It is a club. <laughs> we are. <laughs> The truth is, it's just, you know, it's a big, it's a big or small club. That's the argument, you know, is it, is it getting more diverse? Is it getting more open? But the truth is, we, we can't really pretend that we're, it's not as community. We are a community and we are, we are a club. And, and the thing is, is it, a, is it not normal? Like you say that the criteria, the legal criteria is of the objective observer is not of someone from the arbitral community. Because if you see people at Tinley Hall, you're at a conference, you're actually sleeping, not in the same rooms, but you're sleeping in the same place. You know, you it's three days, right. and and you're in this yeah, Tinley Hall, and you walk the grounds together. And so, what do you mean? You have pictures of people having breakfast together, and that's circulated everywhere. And you're like, what? What? You slept in the same place? Like, uh, that's not normal. <laughs> and you're right. on the same tribunal, or you're a counsel, opposing arbitrator. What? And people in England will tell you, well. Come on, this Tinley Hall, you know? <laughs> it's a little their club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, the whole taking a view on a substantive point of arbitra like arbitration and also your close connections, I mean, we have guidelines for that and we have tested that, I think, enough um, to know that that's not really at risk. But I think the other side of the coin that you're mentioning, Joel, maybe indirectly, is that the informality of social media bears with it some sort of like prejudice to the right. to the viewer and the audience, which I think is a really interesting point. And not only does it have a chilling effect, and it already does, you see people at conferences and you yawn because they can't find a side of the argument to save their life because they're just like tiptoeing around, like taking a strong view. Mm. And then you're like, okay, that was a waste of time. And then but then you also, you know, I've had people, especially in our first seasons, tell me, I can't believe you went online and recorded your the informality with which you discussed this and joking about this and and saying it in like, you know, co normal colloquialisms instead of talking about it in a professional tone with, you know, polysyllabic phrases. It's just right, like, yeah. 
And I think that is a whole other thing that, you know, and companies hire people and HRs and law firms monitor this and they do take it seriously and they try to take it seriously. And I think arbitrators specifically are vulnerable because they tend to be independent contractors and they tend to be on their own. They don't know anything about the internet. They don't know anything about social media presence. They don't have a manager to tell them, oh, don't post this, post this now, post this to this group, which you know a lot of companies do. And we are ignorant to think that we aren't perceived the same as mm. you know some company or law firm as individuals. We and also, sorry, sorry. I, I, no, 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 sorry. I just also, it just what Brian said is, is, is so on point. It, it just rings so many bells to me and there's also another point that was made to me once is um because you know you do conferences you do articles whatever and you publish on linkedin and you you know again like i mentioned i do that to share knowledge with different jurisdiction brainstorm issues i find it really interesting because i do you know learn things like that etc and then the perception of some people might be well was she like is she working like she just spends her time <laughs> Uh, doing these things oh right? my god that's true so it's like you know it's like you post something and people are like oh my gosh you're not doing any work uh but and it's just kind of like what are you kidding like of course i have stuff to do and then on the other side is if you don't post stuff on linkedin and people are like oh my gosh you know i see all these posts by people doing conferences and this and i don't have a, a presence and it's not nice nobody knows who i am and and so it's the reverse um yeah i agree i think this is this is a, a very good note to end on on a, like a more or a serious note almost because that the, that is a crucial aspect of this whole conversation the the type a personality aspect of social media in our field when we are bombarded with this honored and delighted to be you know <laughs> mentioned in or thrilled to be speaking at or blah 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 all, all these posts where you, you you see people's successes in a very yeah. like public format without of course seeing all the failures that we all go through yeah. Behind the stage as well, and I think that that like might even be, become, and for some people, probably already is a mental health issue. That you mm -hmm. get the impression mm -hmm. that everyone's doing lockdown. so many things, getting nominated to panels and speaking on things and publishing things and you know organizing things, and especially in lockdown, you're absolutely right, Brian. It's like, what, what the hell have I been doing the last couple mm -hmm. of months? I have not been on a single panel. I have not interacted with a human being, and like tr trying to just get out of bed in the morning, basically. Yes. Very, very important to remember that it's more than what you see on the social media. It is. It is definitely. Feed. Yeah. And I, I, just coming on that point, I just recently had uh, attended a talk by someone on imposter syndrome. Absolutely fascinating, really interesting. And one thing that she mentioned also was, I forgot who it was now. <clears throat> I'm sorry about that. But there was a very successful person who had his CV and he has his other CV with all his failures, <laughs> everything oh. that he didn't get every you know interview that he 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 messed up every job he missed every scholarship he didn't get and just to show people you know this is also what happened this is also that's me great. um and i think that's great that would be a, a good thing to encourage yeah, the, i i love that Can yeah. I, as a final note completely undermine that <clears throat> <laughs> Uh, by by saying that I have published my book and I have been promoting it online, Yay! exactly in the in the way we should. Yeah, you have it, Sadia. At <laughs> arm's length. Yes, exactly, <laughs> because you did not use the arbitration station uh, discount code because I yes. did not give it to you, and you were probably the first person to buy my book. 
this will end up in the in the episode notes as well. But uh, you can use the promo- discount code seven one three four five if you buy it through Brill. The book is called The Use of Commercial Arbitration Rules in Investment Treaty Disputes. We will put this in the episode notes. And I say this, you know, with the Swedish humility, knowing that I'm I'm proud of this, but it took way too long. It's not a very good book, and I also have. <laughs> A lot of Come failures on. on my list. I have not listed them yet, oh. but I have. I, I will, and I'm. I am merely a stupid, lazy person who managed to write a book in seven years. <laughs> okay, Jan, use that sentence for the next uh, season intro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh come on! You're just you're you're so humble, so humble, Jill. It's it's I'm I'm going through it. I started reading it. It's really good. Uh, we're gonna have a segment on your book. Yes, okay. It's done a lot of work. Exactly. Yeah, just Brian just has to uh, become a solicitor and then spend the summer reading my my book. So we can Happy to let's do it after the summer for the next <laughs> season. I think that's it for this episode and for this happy fun time. Yes. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you.